Hey, welcome to Winning Wave Surf Talk. Uh, I've got a we've got a new episode for you today. Um, very special guest. This is Samantha Bittner, who is the creator, founder, and director of the American Windsurfing Tour, or the AWT. And Samantha's got a great story. She's um, she's got a great, as you'll hear, she's got a, a really great entrepreneurial spirit. Um, she fell in love with windsurfing, moved to Maui, realized that uh, really wanted to see some competitions, um, and realized that there really there really weren't any more comps running. Um, that that had kind of dried out, and and it seemed like interest had kind of fallen by the wayside, and so. She took it upon herself to say, hey, um, I can do this. And she, uh, she, she rallied uh, a, a crew of people who obviously had experience running windsurfing events in the past who were all happy to support her as the, point, as the new point person. And then she, uh, she launches the American Windsurfing Tour, starting with one event in the first year at Pistol River and, uh, and then takes it from there. So it's a really... Really great story about, um, you know, if you build it, they will come, uh, as we hear in sort of their initial debut kickoff event uh, that year at Pistol River, where they got over 80 wave sailors to show up for the event. Um, but, you know, she, she goes on to talk about the, the amount of support that she got from the community. So as soon as she volunteered to be the point person and said that she, that she wanted to do this, um, there, were, there was, there was, as she points out, there's a lot of support that comes from um, people who, who were involved in running prior events to really help her out, and make sure she was going that she'd be successful. So I, I think you'll really enjoy the show. She's, um, um, she's got a great spirit. She talks about the culture of the AWT and just how friendly and welcome and inviting it is. Uh, sounds, sounds like a, a great place to be doing some wave sailing. So please enjoy the show. Um, also, don't forget to visit us at winningwaves.com. Enjoy. Sam, how are you? Good. Sorry for the delay. Um, I don't have the best service, it turns out, so I had to walk around to find the best, the best service in my home. <laughs> oh, no worries. No worries. You got something, though, that works, huh? Yeah, I hope so. Does it sound all right for you? Yeah, it sounds great. It sounds perfect. Oh, good. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. We have that storm coming into town. I don't know if you saw it on the news. No, what, what's going on? I think it's, I don't know if it's a hurricane or a tropical storm, but it's just now hitting. Really? And so it's like perfect timing for our phone call. <laughs> oh, no. So is, this, so is this a storm that's going to be around for a little while, or is this is this going to be like yeah, in and out pretty quickly? Uh, from what I've heard, I think it will be about a week. Uh-oh. So this could impact M2O then, right? M2O? You mean the race on Saturday? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Maui, or Molokai to Oahu. Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Could oh, impact no. that. Oh, no. So <laughs> I'm, I'm coming, I'm heading out for that. So I think that race, that race is on Sunday. I'm doing the, the two-person oh, okay. race, so it'll be a little bit easier than dealing with the solo. But um, no, I did not know about that storm, but that's going to be interesting because I, I did this paddle last year and there was no wind and that was like one of the biggest um, that was one of the biggest concerns a lot of people had, you know, leading up to the race was that the, the wind forecast looked really, really light. And so trying to do that paddle mm -hmm. without any wind assist, people were freaking out. So, oh my gosh. yeah. So knowing there's a storm, 
there's like a storm system in play just means that, you know, the, the, I guess the trade winds are just going to be, who knows if the trades are going to blow at all, right? It means it's just going to be a crap exactly. shoot at that point. Exactly. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you just never know what's going to happen when it's a storm like this. Oh, man. Okay. Well, that'll Thank make you. things interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, Sam, Absolutely. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a lot of fun for me. It is kind of a new thing that we started kicking off. And I think that it, um, it's really valuable. It's really nice. I think for people to be able to get some insight and hear from industry people and get their perspectives on kind of what's going on and like the inner circles of surfing, windsurfing, stand up paddling and so on. So, you know, when we thought about doing this podcast service, you, your name came up quickly and I was like, you know, Samantha Bittner would be a great person to talk to and just um, hear from you just about like the roots and the origins of the American Windsurfing Tour and hear all about your story and and just how the tour came about. But even before then, just kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about like your windsurfing background, how you got into the sport um, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um well, I didn't even know what windsurfing was until 2007. I was on the sailing team at the University of uh, Western Washington University, and um, they offered this class called windsurfing, and I had no idea what it was, so I signed up, and I ended up falling in love with the class, and um, I really enjoyed it. It was just on a lake with light wind, appalling, huge boards, and we were excited. We'd rush to the lake when it was blowing eight because we could cut along at all. So um, I taught the class the next quarter, and then um, I found a windsurfing magazine laying around the shop, and I was looking at all the pictures, and I couldn't believe it was the same sport as what I was loving. And all the pictures were from Maui, and I ended up moving to Maui after college. I did a little bit of traveling beforehand, but when I got to Maui, I just knew, oh, this is home. And, yeah, that's how I got into windsurfing is through being on the sailing team in university. So so, so learning how to windsurf on a, on a lake in Washington, getting excited about eight-mile-an-hour winds, and then moving to Maui is pretty much like going from zero to 100, right? I mean, so how do you deal with the transition <laughs> of going from a really sort of kind of placid, lucid, kind of nice, quiet, <laughs> light wind environment to sort of the – you know, the one of the most coveted windsurfing places in the world. Yeah. Well, um, I had, before I moved over, I had heard about this thing called water starting. And someone explained it to me, and I thought it <laughs> sounded so bizarre. I couldn't even picture it. It just seemed like they were making it up. <laughs> but when I landed in Maui, I was by myself, won my ticket, see what happened. And I, you know, I met a couple of people. I hitchhiked to Kanaha, and I stood there at Kanaha on the beach and I watched around me a hundred windsurfers flying around on the water. I'd never seen planing before. Wow. And it was just, it was phenomenal. And I thought, oh my gosh, one day if I just stick it out and I practice and practice, maybe one day I'll be able to plane and I'll be able to go fast like these people I'm watching right now. Wow. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. So I was just really inspired and everyone at the beach was so friendly and uh, you know, would just give me pointers here and there. And I picked up here hand-me-downs and at garage sales. And um, I remember the first time I went to Hokipa and I watched people windsurfing in the waves there, just being like totally blown away again, thinking, oh, my God, there's no way I'll ever be able to windsurf here. But 
I'll stick to Kanaha if I can. And um, I remember watching um, Junko Nagoshi on the water at Hokipa and her coming off the water being a female and just thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't believe a female is out at Hokipa. It's so gnarly. It's so extreme. She's my top hero. And um, now I'm sailing at Hokipa. It's just kind of crazy to see how far it comes in that amount of time. <laughs> yeah, because, okay, so give me a sense of, like, I know you mentioned the year, but I missed it, but so how, so when did you move to Maui, like how many years ago? Uh, about eight years ago. I moved in 2008. Um, yeah. So that's, I, the, that's uh, some amazing progression in eight years, right? Because, I mean, from people we've talked to, there's there's a feeling that windsurfing is kind of one of the harder, more difficult kind of sports to learn which is, you know, one of the challenges mm-hmm. with the whole growth of the sport and so on. So, I mean, to, be, to yeah. progress from basically a very enthusiastic sort of first year mm-hmm. kind of windsurfer mm-hmm. to moving to Maui and then, you know, getting out and surfing in Kanaha and eventually surf, and windsurfing in Ukipa within eight years, that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, that's, that's about as quickly as anybody <laughs> can learn at that skill level. Oh, well, thank you. But you know what? It's um, it's due to being able to be on the water all day, every day. I worked as a waitress at Mama's in the evenings, and I was just at Ho- at Kanaha every single day. Wow. So you just as loved it. As I possibly could be. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was just, I mean, if I wasn't at work, I was at Kanaha. I was at the beach, and I was learning. And um, I started teaching. As soon as I learned to water start, Alan Cadiz let me teach for his school at HST the beginner lesson, and um, yeah, it was my my total life. That's all I did was windsurf all the time, and I know a lot of people are that way. A lot of people love windsurfing, but I'm really lucky that I had the opportunity to be able to do it as often as I wanted to. Yeah, and in one of the best, yeah, and in one of the best and most consistent places there is, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So when so when you were really so when you were kind of doing the daily Kanaha visits and and camping out there um, during the days, what so what kind of gear were you on? Like what size boards did you kind of start off on, and then ultimately like how quickly did you progress downward, where all of a sudden you went from you know not knowing how to water start when you got to the island to all of a sudden really mm-hmm. being proficient on smaller high wind gear? How did that yeah. how did that whole progress work? It's funny that you asked me about the size board because um, I, um, I don't, well, I remember the first board I learned to dive on was a 99 liter JP board that one of my customers at Mama's gave me because <laughs> I was always talking about windsurfing and one of my customers said, oh yeah, I windsurf, I've got some old equipment, I'll, here you go. And I learned to dive on that 99 JP board. Um, and I stuck with that board for quite a while. But then I started doing the board test for Windsurfing Magazine. Wow. Since I got exposed to a bunch of different boards. Well, they, they asked me to do it because they wanted people of all different skill levels. Right. They wanted to hear feedback from, you know, um, kind of beginner level. Or, you know, just entering the sport level. Um, and then I progressed to smaller and smaller boards. I think the smallest board that I use is like a 70 liter and I always thought oh the better I get the smaller board I'll have but then now after traveling the world and competing windsurfing in the waves on all these different spots it's not about having a smaller board is what I've learned and I've kind of gotten comfortable with the 79 liter 80 liter board because you want something that's going to float you out and get you onto the wave 
and it's not just all about getting a smaller board. And now I'm on Maui doing the race series this summer, and my race board is 95, and I rock it. Ah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. No, and that um, makes sense because obviously you, know, you can't travel with – I mean, it gets hard to travel with a lot of gear. And so you can't kind of – can't bring enough board to satisfy every kind of condition. So at some point you got to just plan on bringing a board that you're going to feel comfortable with, even if the winds are light or the waves are small or, you know, something, you know, you can, you can compete with, you know, that's not going to be so small that you're going to be challenged, you know, just trying to, just trying to get out there and trying to, trying to winter up in, in lighter, more challenging conditions. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as the type of gear that I was riding, it was always hand-me-downs until um, one night I was waiting tables at Mama's again, and I waited on David Ezzy, and I recognized huh. him, but I didn't want to, like, embarrass myself and be like, oh, my God, David Ezzy. So I <laughs> kind of led the conversation that way, and then I ended up freaking out anyway. I ride your <laughs> And um, he asked me to be on the team, which was like, oh my God, I'm making it. This is wow, crazy. that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. But well, once you my... gave me the gear, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> so once you <laughs> gave me the gear, what that... happened? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, well, this is this is an odd predicament to be in. He's giving me this gear, which I know is extremely valuable, and what can I give in return? And so I thought I should compete, but there were no contests, and so hence organizing the event. <laughs> ah, so that starts to get into like the beginning of, of, so that's like the formation of the American Windsurfing Tour. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, so giving me a sense of what that, what, what kind of led you to start the tour? Like what was going on then in terms of events and competitions or the absence of events and competitions and kind of what did you see as sort of the opportunity that ultimately the AWT filled? Yeah. I had no idea that I was going to make a tour like this at all. That wasn't my intention. But um, what I really was looking for is something to give back to Ezzy for sponsoring me. I just felt like it was silly to take the gear and I just needed to do something in return. So I wanted to work up to the level where I could compete and represent the brand well. And Mm -hmm. so I started looking for events and there just weren't any windsurfing events period. I mean, there was the Maui race series, but there weren't any wave sailing events. Um, the Aloha Classic or any events at Hokipa hadn't happened for five years. And so I started asking around to the old organizers saying, hey, bring the contest back because I want to see the contest. I want something to work for. And they all said, no, no, we've done that in the past. There's no money in it. It's too much work. Um, wow. People aren't grateful for it. Uh, that's a thing of the past but you should go for it. They said that I should organize these events. And I happen to have my degree in sports promotion, but I never thought I would apply my degree until uh, I started organizing the events. And I realized, oh, perfect. Called up mom and dad. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for the college education. I'm using it now. (laughs) (laughs) There's something very satisfying about using your college degree in your profession, right? Makes you feel like you had the whole thing planned out from the beginning. Right, I meant to do that, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, but then 
So this came out of enthusiasm. This came out of like your raw enthusiasm of saying like, I want to bring these events back. I'd love to see competition happening again. And, and it's, it's, it's very admirable of you to sort of think about that from the standpoint of trying to give back, you know, to the, to Ezzy, to the, to David Ezzy and for just to your sponsors, essentially, right. To be able to promote the brand and, and, and bring back a stage or a platform that allows people to show off, you know, the sport and all the different brands that put so much research, development, time and energy and money into creating all this great equipment. So mm-hmm. when you say, so when you said like, obviously the Aloha Classic hadn't occurred in a while and basically the event scene had dried up, are you talking about specifically mm-hmm. on Maui or are you saying, you know, elsewhere as well? Uh, well, I started looking into Maui and then, when I realized that there weren't any events there, I started looking on the mainland, and I quickly found out that there were no wind, no, no wave sailing contests on the mainland either. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe it. And so I started trying to see what I could do to make the Aloha Classic come back. And at that time, we had different government uh, restrictions, and I just ran into a, a wall trying to get anything going in Maui. So I started looking other places, and I saw an old event T-shirt, the 99 Pistol River Nash Bash. And um, on the back of the T-shirt was all these logos logos from local shops in Gold Beach, people that wanted the event to happen in their town. And so I tried Googling um, Pistol River because I thought that was the town, but um, the nearest town I could find to Pistol River was Gold Beach. I called them. I called the city hall, and they nice. said, "Oh, can I be, please be put in touch with Pistol River?" And they said, "Oh, that's a park." <laughs> 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 and I said, "Well, I heard you, you used to have a, con- a windsurfing contest there. Why don't you bring it back? Can you make it happen again?" And the lady that answered the phone happened to have the cell phone number for Dana Miller, who's the local windsurfer there. And she gave me his cell phone number. I called him, and he happened to be sitting right next to Lars Bergstrom, who wow. used to be the organizer for that event. And so wow. I was on speakerphone with both of them, and I said, bring the event back. I want to come to it. I want to watch the pros in a contest. And Lars said the same thing that the Maui organizer said. Oh, no, I have a family now. I have a job. <laughs> but you're welcome to organize it if you want. Wow. And he helped me from – Everything from ordering the porta potties, like telling me who, what company I should call for porta potties, like <laughs> the restaurant in town to have our opening party, and you know things like that. All the little details. Oh, like don't forget rubber bands to put around the clipboards for the judges' seat. <laughs> when do the paper will blow around? You know. Right. So I thought that maybe ten of my friends would come to this event in a location that I've never been before. Right. But. 88 people came wow. from all over the world, including like Timo Mullen and Robbie Nash and, um, wow. and Francisco Goya and the Pritchard. Matt Pritchard was the head judge. Kevin Pritchard did all the video work. And um, John Carter was the photographer. It was just completely overwhelming. That is no awesome. Idea. That is so awesome, was- right? Because they all, <laughs> they all wanted it to happen. They just needed someone to organize it all. Right. Exactly. And so as soon as you put it in motion, these guys, everyone just came out of the woodwork. That's impressive. Exactly. I find that a lot with events. Um, you just need to have one person that says, okay, I'm in charge. 
Right. Like, it's my, this is my fault. This is why it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> right. Blame Sam. Yeah. Blame Sam. Well, uh, so how much, so between the time that you said go, where you were committed to doing the first Pistol River event again, and then the actual event date, how much time went by? How much time did you have to organize all that? Yeah. Um, I want to say it was about six months because we knew that the best time of year to have the contest was in June. So you got 88 people. You got 88 people to respond within six months to an event that hadn't run in years. That's that's awesome. Yeah. That event had been not happening for 10 years. Wow. Exactly. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> and at that point, I mean, did, people, now, know, did people know you? I mean, did, were people saying like, hey, this is oh. Amanda Bittner on Maui. Oh, she's awesome. No. She's getting behind no. thing. Really? Wow. No, nobody knew who I was at all, but, you know, they they did know the people that I partnered up with, like Matt Pritchard, Kevin Pritchard, right. Robbie Mellis, Francisco Goya, and I got them all to say that they were going because yeah. I would see them here in Maui. I had a total advantage. I, mean, I was their next-door neighbor. I could knock on their door and be like, hey, <laughs> will you listen to this contest that I'm organizing? Can I tell people that you're coming? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And they were obviously hungry for it too, right? They were excited to see it happen. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Who who was like your biggest yeah. who was like your biggest fan who just like jumped off the couch and said, "I can't wait to get a tour going again." <laughs> oh my gosh, they all were. They really? All were, but if I have to pick one, I think over the years the biggest fan has been Francisco Goya. As far as his wow. enthusiasm to be like. Yeah, let's make it happen. I remember we came up with the name American Windsurfing Tour. Francisco and I sat down together. And we were writing down words of uh, what we should call this organization, this idea of having a bunch of events. And we wrote down a bunch of words, and we both felt like America was a great word to use. We wanted to use North America, but I didn't want to limit that because I no. always dreamed about going to South America. Right. And, um, yeah, yeah. It's and a, then it was it's Kevin, perfect. Kevin made the logo. Kevin and his best friend Johannes Newman in Germany made the logo, and it stuck the whole time. Well, that's great. They did a great job, and they do a great job, like with a lot of the video content. I know. So I mean, I know that Kevin obviously has some pretty amazing creative skill sets, right? That he mm-hmm. does a lot yeah. of amazing video edits, edits for you guys, and no, he's 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 mm-hmm. definitely got a lot of. Um, creative talents as well um yeah, it's been incredible that's that's great so then just so just quickly so you had the pistol river event and then so the first year you got the tour going again how many events did you have it was just the one okay 2010 was only pistol river and i at that time i had no intention of running a tour at all i just wanted to get a bunch of people together and have a contest <laughs> That's awesome. I had no idea I would do another one or I had no idea. At, at the closing party, people had come from all over the world. Wow. At the closing party, they all came up to me and said, this is so amazing. You have to do one in Baja. You have to do one in Morocco. You have to do one in Brazil. You have to do one in Peru. And I was so overwhelmed. I couldn't even speak. I couldn't move. I was wow. like over the top. Yeah. And so I took a moment to digest and think about it and follow up with people who had suggested the different locations and think about it. And then in 2011, we had four events. 
Awesome. We meant to have five, but then the hurricane came to um, Hatteras and canceled the Hatteras event. Ooh, yeah. Well, hurricanes do seem to pound that poor little island way too frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But that that's awesome. And so when you were when you were originally looking back and looking at sort of the absence or vacuum of wave events, um, what did you see when you looked at like the PWA wave events? Are those kind of more typically in Europe, or is it was it the just lack of proximity to Maui that made those kind of look appealing or what why did you why didn't you just kind of jump onto that tour or or start following that tour or get interested in in that instead of creating your own tour yeah um that's a tricky one um i think i feel like the pwa is so much different than the awt and and yes it is mostly a european tour it's also starboard tracks where um opposite the Oh, sorry, Port Tech, starboard Tech, Port Tech. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Port Tech, which is opposite than what we have here. And, I mean, as far as price goes, for me to be able to fly over to Europe, and I knew that that's only an event that I'd be able to watch. I wouldn't be able to participate in because you need to be the best of the best to participate in the PWA. Um, so to spend all that money to fly all the way to Europe to be able to watch a contest yeah, uh, and not be able to participate wasn't as appealing. Um, just the distance. I think that what the PWA does is incredible. To be able to keep windsurfing a professional sport, right? that has to happen. Like the PWA has to exist. And I really appreciate, I appreciate now more than ever how much work that they put into the PWA to be able to provide prize money, to be able to provide windsurfing to be a professional sport for the professional athletes. It's huge. I really appreciate it. And I'm really grateful to be able to work with the PWA in Maui for the Aloha Classic now for the right. last three years. Yeah. I've learned a lot from them. And I'm, I think it's really important that we work together to make this big event at the end of the year for both our tours in Maui. Right. Because that's obviously the one combined event that both of you guys work on together, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so how did how did you resurrect the the Aloha Classic? Was that was that you trying to bring that back and and getting the help of the PWA to help make it happen? Um, I mean, you mentioned there was it was just challenging to try to get any kind of events going on in Maui, right? But w- when you teamed up with the PWA, did it make it any easier? Um, that's a good question. It's definitely different combining with the PWA. I did run the event by myself for two years. It was just the uh, American Windsurfing Tour. And I used the name Makani Classic. That's the name I came up with myself um, because um, the old event organizer for the Aloha Classic, Paul Eamon, bought the rights and owns the rights for the name Aloha Classic. Uh, And I thought, okay, I'll just make this my own type of event. And... um, and Josh Stone was a huge factor in helping to make the first, um, we'll call it the Aloha Classic, that I organized in 2011 at Hokipa Possible because he worked with the local government and he has the connections there and was able to, to help me get the permits and help me get the, the funding to make the first um, Hokipa event happen for us in 2011. And I ran it. 2011, 2012, just as an AWT event, and the PWA was kind of knocking on my back door saying, hey, we want to join in with you. 
but we need this much prize money. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm barely pulling together the funds <laughs> to pull off this event. I don't see how I'm going to find prize money. And finally, in 2013, they said, all right, we're bringing the prize money from the <laughs> that we have connections with. Can we come play in your game? And I'm like, that sure. is that is the, that's got to be one of the biggest compliments I can imagine, right? Yeah. So they oh, they clearly could have done it themselves, but they saw you doing it and said, "We got to do this." But then you didn't have the right amount of prize money, so they made it work. And and now you guys are have have successfully been able to put this to get put this on together, right, for a few years now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a great it's season a ender, and it's and, it, and it's basically everybody, right? Everybody who's a professional wave sailor is competing in that event. Exactly. Yep. It's like the the ultimate finale for both tours. It's perfect, and I love that it's in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> and that was actually the first time that I sailed at Hokipa was right before the first uh, the first Hokipa event in 2011. It was the summer of 2011 when I had just gotten the permits and the funding and I was I knew that the event was going to happen at Hokipa and I was trying to get people to sign up for it and trying to get girls to sign up for it and they were scared and I'm like oh come on you can do it <laughs> and like, you're not doing it and I said well uh 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 so I learned to get through the shower break and <laughs> Hokipa is probably one of the hardest things and then of course avoiding the magnet of the rock right towards them every time but um people started to get to know who i was and i feel like they were a bit nicer to me encouraging me oh take this wave i'll go for this and, wow you know helping me out when i get close to the rocks i'm kind of taking away a bit of the anxiety of windsurfing at hokipa for me and i've been able to compete every year now <laughs> and with the help of the jet skis sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, hey, that's Sam over there. Go rescue her. Yeah, it's good to have all no, those friends in the water. Not that you need it, but. Uh, no, I do. Every time before I go out for my heat during contest, I radio the jet ski guys. I'm like, hey, remember that paycheck? Well, um, <laughs> hey, I'm going out for my heat now. Thanks. Cry <laughs> <laughs> on me. Thank you. Right. I'll have the yellow jersey on. That's me. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. What's that like being being not only the, you know the director and the and the, and basically the person who's putting on and running the event and competing in your own event? How, is that challenging? I mean, that's got to be Nightmare. yeah, yeah. it's got to be tricky, right? Nightmare. You put all your clipboards yeah. down, you put your your headphones down or your loudspeaker or whatever, and and then you put your jersey on and you grab your your rig and you go out there. Oh my gosh, I can't even tell you. Yeah. Before contests, I'm always like, okay, this year, this contest, I'm going to really focus on my own windsurfing. I'm going <laughs> to put my focus into my own competition. But um, as soon as the first horn goes, it's like, okay, judges, are you in place? Do you have everything you need? Oh, here comes the DLNR officer. Here comes the um, lifeguard. Oh, somebody's hurt. Oh, why aren't there enough judges in the tower? There's always something, so it's hard to focus on what are, what are the waves doing right now and yeah. how can I best complete my heat. So a lot of times it'll be minutes before my heat and some one of my girlfriends will come running up to me, Cam, I've got your gear rigged on the beach. Just, here's your harness. Go. It's your heat. Don't miss it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, tricky. But yeah. that's why I love the 
I love the Maui Race Series so much because I'm not organizing that at all. I'm just participating as an athlete, and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's got to be a, a huge relief after kind of wearing all the hats and competing in the AWT. Mm-hmm. It's got to be nice to go out there and just focus on running your heats, yeah. right? It's so much fun. It's yeah. so much fun. Yeah, well, yeah, and yeah, you deserve it. I mean, it's it's nice to be able to let somebody else be in charge of that for a little while just so you can go out and play. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's you, you were, we were talking about starboard tack and port tack. That's kind of an interesting difference, right, between various tours. And the AWT is really kind of known, if, if as I understand it, it's kind of known as a port tack tour. So mm-hmm. that obviously means that you guys are looking for uh, destinations to hold events that all run off of a port tack, right? And that's because mm-hmm. is that because most of the people who are competing are live in Maui and so they're they're more accustomed to a port tack and so they want to they, they really only want to compete on other port tack sites and port tack places or how does that work we're kind of we are open to different things like Morocco was different and Peru is different um I don't know we're open to changing it up but you're right a lot of the writers are accustomed to one way of sailing so yeah, because like um, for instance in the in the surfing world, right? So if you look at like the the World Surf League, I, I mm-hmm. think I I don't know if they do it intentionally. I imagine they do, but they kind of they mix up the different stops, right? They'll have right point breaks, left point breaks. So some some spots obviously favor regular footers, some favor goofy footers, and then they they I think they try to come up with sort of an even split in terms of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. breaks that are, that are left and breaks that are right to help just kind of balance yeah. the fields, right? Yeah. I don't think that we have a balanced field, and I think that's a great point to bring up because I'd love to mix up the tour a little bit next year. And I'd love to hear more ideas of, you know, different different locations and what, what people want to have. But I think that's a great point, and I'd love to keep that in mind when making the tour for next year to maybe keep it a little bit more even. Yeah, I mean, you might get some of that feedback from riders too. There might be some riders who just say, like, yeah. "Hey, I'm, you know, I'm just so much more comfortable on the starboard tack, and most of these stops are port tacks." Mm-hmm. I mean, that's gonna—I mm-hmm. gotta imagine that's gonna make a difference. But that—that um, that leads me to another question, which is just about—we uh, were talking about qualifications, you know, for getting into the PWA, and you were talking about having to go all the way to Europe, and you have to, you know, be able to qualify. You have to be the best of the best, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms, of, in terms of the qualifications for the AWT, is it is it is it pretty open? Um, can just, just about anybody show up and 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 enter? Yep, absolutely. That's the point of um, the AWT is to provide opportunity for everyone to showcase their skills and to inspire the future of the sport. That's great. So I would never turn anyone around. And um, you know, we've had a couple of riders that really weren't comfortable going out and. I mean, you have to listen and be safe and everything, but we've we've really helped people get out through the shore break and <laughs> it's a family event. I really feel like the AWT is family style and if someone's looking for a more um strict by the rules, I know the PWA is a great a great place for that, but the AWT is all about let's get everyone on the water, let's encourage everyone. 
like before most people are saying, hey, good luck, man, good job out there. It's great. I know for the girls, the girl heats especially, we'll all do a little group hug before the heat and (laughs) (laughs) encourage each other. And um, no, definitely, there's six divisions in the AWP. There's pro, amateur, women, master, grandmaster, and youth. So there's there's room for everybody, and they're all skill level. It's good. So you really don't know how many competitors you're going to have until the kind of registration is closed, right? Yeah, that is that is a tricky part about making the bracket. Um, a lot of times we get a lot of last-minute registrations based on forecast. Um, but, yep, it's always a surprise. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, and then how do people kind of manage the travel, right? So like even Morocco last year, you know, like adding that Mm -hmm. as a destination is such a great idea, especially knowing that like Bujma, I'm sure had a, was, was eager to get you guys over there. Um, what, What does it mean for your numbers when you try to select different sites? Like, cause I, I mean, not knowing, not knowing kind of what the sponsorship levels look like for a lot of the athletes. I mean, they're sort of trying to balance these decisions, right? About sort of, well, different sponsorship levels for all these different riders, having this sort of very open kind of registration process and very welcoming to kind of new people, which is, which is so great. Um, fairly lengthy waiting periods, right? Cause you gotta make sure you have the right conditions and then pretty lengthy travel, right? So trying to get to these different places, um, how, how do people balance all that, particularly the people who, you know, have, I mean, have regular, I don't know if you can even say it this way, but like regular jobs, like people who, who don't have the sponsorship level where they just get, they're just sailing every day for their sponsors, right? They're yeah. people who, who are, who are trying to break through and they have, and they, but they, they still need to hold down like some other kind of income producing job. But at the same time, they really want to try to make as many events as they can. How do they juggle the travel right. schedule? <laughs> well, I think you brought up a bunch of different groups of types of people. Um, there's the Nathan Mershon type, who's about my age, about 30, and he does have a regular job, but he's also on the verge of, like, getting a big sponsorship. I know he's sponsored by Nash, but I think he's um, a lot of what you're describing right now. And um, he's working construction, and so he can take a week off and be able to travel to these different spots. Um, and hope to do well and hope to have a good time. I think a lot of people also include some kind of a touristy thing, like when they go to Peru for the event, they'll also make a stop to Machu Picchu and also bring their family with them. So it's a kind of a joint trip. Um, a lot of the, the masters and grandmasters um, have a hard time. Gosh, I don't know. There's a lot of different groups of people in the tour. Um, some of the guys just like to do the back-to-back events, like um, how we had Pistol River and then Rio Vista and the Gorge. And so they just take a couple of weeks off work and stay local, be able to drive through the different spots. Right, right. Uh, do you have... The guys, like, do you have... Uh, more... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm so bad about that. Oh, no. That's okay. Is that, do, um, do a lot of people do like a cluster of events like that? Versus doing the you know like every event of the year. Yeah, definitely. We've got we've got a, a bunch of people. I'd say about 
50% of the people at most of the spots are local people that will just do their one local spot on the tour. Gotcha. And then the other half, maybe it's 25%, will do every single stop on the tour, and the other 25% will do just the qualifying events because it's, this year it's only the top three events that qualify for your overall title for the year. And so they'll do the, the only three events this year that they feel like will they'll place the best and they can, you know, get that overall trophy at the end of the year. Gotcha. So, a bunch of different groups of people, but then there's also like Morgan Noyo and Kamiji Bon who are who have done well in the AWP and are working up to the PWA. So they went over for the Morocco event and will continue to train over in Europe for some PWA events and then come back and compete in Peru and Maui. Okay. A bunch, okay. Of, a bunch of different groups of people, which I love. And then, oh, another good group is the, the kids, like Aunt Rodiger and Fiona Wild, who met at the first AWP event in Pistol River in 2010 when they were 13. Wow. And continued on the tour together and then found stand-up paddling. And they're making all kinds of prize money and being able to travel the world. And I'm, I'm so happy for them. I think it's a great way to grow. And a lot of times the AWP is a jumping starting point for people to continue their passions and maybe go on to PWA or go on to stand-up paddling. And, and maybe it's a, a kicking point for a family vacation that gets to bond a family together. I just I love it. I love it all. <laughs> the, well, the culture of it just sounds so great, right? It's like it just so, it seems so friendly, so inviting, and just like everybody seems to be having a good time, and they're blending it in with family vacations and taking advantage of going to these places, not just to sail and get it and then leave, but sail, stick around, and and do a little do a little touring of like wherever they are. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of similar. To, I mean, stand up paddle. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the stand up paddle culture, right? Because there's so many. Everyone's just so friendly. Like even the way you describe the way that people are, you know, wishing each other luck before their heats and, you know, honestly, mm-hmm. you know, hoping for the, hoping everybody kind of gets the best performance, the best day they can. And I mean, stand up paddle racing, at least in my experience, seems to be really similar to that. You know, everybody's just really, really friendly. And at the end of the day, you know, you're sharing beers with people and complimenting one another on how well they did. And there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of people holding their cards tightly and being really competitive or really trying to, you know, strategically kind of outthink or kind of just outperform other people. It's just, it's a big welcoming family, which is cool. And it seems like that's kind of the same culture that the AWT has, which is great. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Do, I'm pretty uh, lucky. I'm lucky. Do, um, do a do a lot of uh, do some of the top AWT people are they are they sort of um, juggling both schedules are they sort of blending PWA events with AWT events and doing like two tours every year um, and, and, uh, and if so, not, sorry go ahead <laughs> no I was just thinking like when you try to schedule your events you have to kind of look at the PWA schedule and just make sure you don't have a lot of conflicts. Yeah, I like to look at the schedule just in case people want to do both um, events. But there really aren't that many people that do both tours. I want to say there's Camille and Morgan. Uh, I think that the Shedaways might be starting to do the PWA as well. There's three young brothers that live on Maui now, and I believe they're over-training for PWA. I don't know if they're competing this year, but 
there's a few up and coming, but it's not enough um, that I would really say, oh, if, you know, if this is the best week for brew, but it happens to overlap with the PWA event, I wouldn't, you know, I would pick the best week for conditions in Peru. Got it. So, Got mm-hmm. it. Okay. That's yeah. Well, that's good. So, so people are kind of exclusively on one tour or the other. There's not too much blending. Yeah. I mean, I definitely welcome it, and I encourage people, and I think it's great if you're able to go and do it. That's that's awesome. But I mean, now that you see all the calendars of the stand-up paddling events, oh yeah, I feel like I have to work around that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it would be impossible yeah. to try to yeah. It'd be, try, it'd be impossible That's to try to schedule around all the other events that are going on. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I know this. Like, I know that once in a while you guys will have little Santa paddle wave surfing events, right? In the event that the wind doesn't cooperate, <laughs> the things like that. Yeah, so have, what's the strategy yeah. for for no wind days? What do you guys usually do? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's important to keep the troops entertained. I've discovered because if people have traveled so far for a windsurfing contest they show up at the beach and there's no wind and there's no activity plan they get frustrated very quickly and they find little things to complain about and they're not happy and so it's important to come up with a quick little distraction and one of my go-tos is the board toss you take an old windsurf board draw a line in the sand and see how far you can throw it everybody (laughs) gets one side there's no spinning and only get one tra- one chance to do it. So that's a fun one. And then also everywhere we go, there's awesome tourist things to do. Like in Hatteras, we've taken the ferry over to Okokoke. Yeah. Uh, and in Maui, there's the Haleakala, or there's always some, you know, a little bit of surf. We can go snorkeling or whatnot. Um, there's always some type of activity, and I do think it's important to keep people. We've done dodgeball on the beach before. So, <laughs> well, do you? That's gotta be stressful to you, though, right? Do you feel like you have to play tour guide if there isn't any wind that day? Um, yes, but I don't think that's stressful. I think it's fun. Yeah. Well, that's what makes it work for you, right? Because then you don't have to worry. If, yeah. if it's not stressful, then it's a little more entertaining, a little it's more. It's so cool. I mean, sometimes when you show up to these awesome places and there's incredible winter conditions the whole time. You fly in, you fly out, and that's all you've seen. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I went all the way to Morocco, and all I saw was, like, one beach, and I went home. Yeah. Yeah. I think that happens for a lot of um, professional windsurfers that have traveled the world. I've heard a lot of stories about people that have been in the PWA for years and years and haven't seen anything except for the beaches (laughs) that the contest was at. Yeah. So I'm happy to be able to provide that opportunity whenever I can. And that's, I think that's yeah. great. I think that's great because especially, yeah, I mean, it's a shame for especially these like young athletes who have this opportunity to, quote, travel the world, you know, as part of this professional sport, but then they really don't get any of the cultural experience of being in all these different places because they're, they're just shuttled, they're shuttled right to the event site and then they compete and then they're shuttled right out of there. It's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a really cool experience when we came over to um, to New York for the um, when I when I got to go up to your neighborhood. Yes. Yes. We drove from Hatteras all the way up to Montreal and stopped in a different city every day. And when we got to DC, um, none of us had ever been there before. But Ben was just finishing up um, high school history and knew so much about 
what what Washington D.C. had to offer, and he's you know reading all the all the writing on the walls of these historical buildings, and it meant so much to him. And it was really cool to be able to see him experience American history like that, and you know provide the opportunity for him. And it was cool for me too, of course, but it's it's really great. Yeah, and that's you know that's the ultimate experiential kind of learning, right? I mean, you can read about that stuff in a book, but then if you actually get to visit the sites, it's it's incredible, you know. And it's just it's obviously yeah. so much more tangible, so much so much more real. And mm-hmm. yeah, that I mean, you guys basically got to see a big chunk of the East Coast by doing that doing that tour, doing that travel schedule. Yeah, that was a good one. I'll always remember that trip. <laughs> I'm glad that worked out for you guys. It was fun to see you guys in New York. I couldn't believe it. When I when I saw that news, I, I that the AWT was coming to this little beach in Plattsburgh on Lake Champlain, I I was blown away. I was like, I gotta I gotta get over there and check this out. <laughs> and we had zero wind. I remember that. I know. I know. We did little clinics on the beach. That's another good one. I mean if you've got the pros there, that's awesome experience to have a handful of pros giving uh clinics and you know doing question and answer sessions with the amateurs that are so hungry to meet the pros yes they just eat it up like gold (laughs) yeah that's so true they they eat it up and and so yeah i mean we have you know we're we're on a lake and so we have like fickle wind conditions so that's that's probably why i asked you the question about what your light wind strategy is because Everybody's always looking for good ideas about what to do in case, you know, the wind doesn't cooperate. But Bortas is a great one. <laughs> we, we found a relatively good one recently, which um, we run this kids camp, uh, which has been great, um, this weekly thing for kids. And and on the and uh, recently we've been experimenting with um, uh, SUP polo, stand-up paddle polo, which is pretty cool. And it's kind of... It's like this new, it's a new little kind of fun sport, recreational sport activity thing that's still kind of newfangled. It's very innovative, but it's it's basically a stand-up paddle blade that's curved like a high-lie stick a little bit with a hole cut out. And then you play with this little tiny soccer ball and you're standing on inflatable paddle boards and there's goals on either end. And it's really, it's really, really fun. And so for the kids, they're like, if the wind's not blowing, they'll just play polo and they just, they have a blast. They have a oh blast. my gosh. Yeah, so that was that. That's a great light wind activity right there. People love it. Wow. Yeah. How do you make the goals? They're um they're inflatable, and um so we we bought this product from Starboard. Starboard made it a couple of years ago, and then we ended up buying one. Um, we actually do a a weekly adult league too. We do like Tuesday nights sub polo league. No way. Week. Yeah. I need to fly over. Tyler, <laughs> you got to check it out. Go to our website, take a look at it. It's pretty hilarious. So. It's um, it works out great, especially in the summer. Like we play in the evenings, we play for like two hours. We get a bunch of thirty-minute games in, and everybody plays one another in the course of the four weeks that we run it. It's it's a blast. It's a blast. And so having that at our having the access to that and having having that available to us for the for the camp hours as well just really helps out with um, you know, filling the days when the wind just when it's just like real glassy out there and you really can't even kind of justify or quantify like rigging sails and trying to do much of anything when it's just kind of a mirror finish on the water. So on those days we play, we play polo and it's a great downwind activity. 
Oh my gosh, that's awesome! I'm so inspired. I'll have to check it out on your website. <laughs> check it out because it, yeah, the investment in like just the little polo sticks and the ball is all you need. You don't even need like the big court. Um, so I don't know. It might be a fun addition for you guys once in a while. <laughs> it sounds great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, there was a couple other questions I had for you that would be interesting just to talk about. One was, um, um, who are so. Who are the judges that you that you work with for each of the events, and how do you kind of select who the judges are? And like, are they are they obviously prior competitors, people who obviously used to compete, so they know what goes into it? And and are they consistent? You get the same judges for each event, or how does that work? Oh gosh, it would be awesome to have the same judges for every event. We try to do that. Um, we've always run with a head judge, starting with Matt Pritchard in the very first event. He stayed on tour with us for a few years. His job was to make sure that we had proper judges on the go and they were trained. And he'd show them little video clips and say, all right, what did you think of that wave and what would you, what score would you give it? And wow. he would train the judges. And that was kind of our, our base and where we started from. And we got a couple really great judges trained up like Dave Dominey was awesome and or continues to be awesome he's still on board um Russ Farrell who's now kind of our head I don't want to call him head judge because he's also competing in the pro division but he's kind of taking it under his wing it's his responsibility kind of leader of the the group of judges and we've got Ruben Lemons who is also competing um let's see they are they're people that are very experienced and knowledgeable of all the moves and have been judging for years. Um, they all volunteer, which is wow. amazing. Definitely appreciated. They give them lots of beer and food and a place to stay. <laughs> but they fly but, themselves out there? Um, typically. Wow. Yeah. That's typically. great. Sometimes a lot of times we do find sponsors to, to pay for flights. Um but it's always every event is a little bit different. And I like that about the AWT is that we can be flexible because every every spot is totally different. And to set, you know, make a set list of rules just doesn't really apply to every every location. Right. Um, but we do make sure that the judges know what they're doing and that they're being consistent. And we do have one person in the judge's power that is, you know, kind of watching after the judges and making sure it's fair and consistent. And we do allow the competitors to come up and see how the judging system works. And I definitely recommend that to the new new athletes and new competitors just to see how how the system works. A lot of people don't understand that it's oftentimes the best two waves of your heat. So if you have five or ten mediocre waves and another guy in your heat got two amazing waves and that's all he got he'll beat you right <laughs> right yeah so yeah judging uh, uh that's yeah, try to keep it consistent oh that's great well because i mean that's going to keep credibility it's going to keep like you know all the athletes feeling like it's fair and you know mm -hmm. that that's got to be one of the toughest things to pull off because you know, like you said, if, if there's if they're if they're doing it on a volunteer basis, that's incredible, and it and it speaks again really loudly towards just the amazing culture you created there, and just how 
how much people really wanted to see this whole tour happen, right? Even, mm-hmm. I mean, from the from the moment all the the that you got the response to your very first event to having really great, well qualified, high caliber judges basically almost paying their way to go to these events just to judge windsurfing events. These uh, these all these people absolutely love windsurfing, right? I mean, they they're passionate <laughs> about windsurfing. Yeah, and this is absolutely. what they want to be doing. And yeah. so the AWT has really given them the opportunity to really continue to fall in love with the sport, which is so great. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And be a part of it. Yep, they love it. <laughs> we all do. We love being a part of it. And so as a result of all of that, how do you think the sport of windsurfing overall is doing? What do you What do you sort of see from from your seat, your vantage, are you seeing kind of a, any, are you seeing a, a, a new growth curve in the sport? Are you seeing like it changing in terms of the types of winter person are getting interested in, in the sport or is it getting more just regionally specific to just kind of windy areas? What do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, I've only been in the industry for eight years now. But from what I've seen, I've watched stand-up paddling explode. I've watched kiting, I feel like, come down a little bit. And maybe that's because there used to be kiting events in Maui and there's not anymore. And I think a lot of what people talk about is events. And it gives some, yeah, it gives something for people to write magazine articles about and for social media to follow is a lot about events. And I think being able to have this many events in North America, especially in the best spot um, for wave sailing, which is most visually appealing. Um, I think it's been tremendous things for the sport and to keep those people that uh, that have um, windsurfing shops excited about selling windsurfing gear and keeping yeah. their product in stock and about the people that make windsurfing gear um, an opportunity to go to these events and demo their gear and be one-on-one with their clients. You know, it's um, it's really important, and I feel I do feel like the AWT has grown windsurfing in the United States. Like, I just I can't deny that. I really do feel like it's done a great for the industry. Yeah, so I'm I'm proud of it, and I'm I'm happy that it's continuing. And I feel like yeah, it's my family, and it's growing, and. Yeah, I couldn't be a happier mom. <laughs> Do you think there's a whole bunch of new Sam Bittners out there on some lake in western <laughs> Washington who are aspiring to wave sail at Ukipa one day? Oh, at Western. You know what? I send my old windsurfing coach, the, the guy that was running the winter school for the university, I send him a letter every Christmas and send him photos and send him magazines. <laughs> He shows it to his kids, and I've gone up a couple times and donated old gear to this program, and I think that they're really confused because they don't quite grasp what the heck I'm doing. But I mean, <laughs> but they have to be just—they have to be blown away at how far you've you've gone from from those days when they when you were, you know, sailing on that lake. It's incredible. <laughs> No kidding. It is a lot different. It's it's funny the things that the little things you run into life that you never realize would completely change your future. You know. 
And the fortunate timing, the fortunate timing that you had, you know, like, uh, for instance, when you called and talked to about setting up the Pistol River event. Right. And just the good fortune of those two guys sitting with each other when your call came in and Mm -hmm. talking to the prior event organizer. um, It it was made to happen. You know, it it manifested itself from just the the vision you had and, and the the interest in you had and just seeing events starting to take shape again. Yeah, I'm really happy. And it's, I mean, I cannot take all the credit at all. The only thing I can take credit for is I put my neck out and I took responsibility for the event, but there's no way, absolutely no way in hell I could have done it by myself. It was all the people that believed in the idea and wanted it to happen that pitch in and make it possible. The sponsors that continue to support the tour and all the people that participate and the people that continue to buy winter gear and keep the sport alive and continue to grow the sport. It's not just me that made the AWT. It's everyone. It's the mm. family. Yeah, and I understand that. And I, just, I, I, I agree. But like you said earlier, you know, it takes somebody to just say, okay, I'll do it. I'll be in charge. I'll, I'll be the one. <laughs> right? I yeah. mean, because yeah. as soon as you said that, you had a team of people who were ready to get behind you and show you exactly what you needed to do. They were going to supply rubber bands for the clipboards and every other little detail you needed. But what they really wanted to hear was somebody to say, I'm really excited about this and I'm ready to take charge and make it happen. Um, but I'm going to need the support of all of you guys who have done this before. And it sounds mm-hmm. like, it sounds like you got that and it was just, and it was great. And that was, um, yeah, that was, that was, that's, it's inspirational. Yeah. I feel like anybody could, if anybody's listening to this podcast, <laughs> they can apply it to their, to their online too. I mean, just the other day, there was a retirement party that needed to be organized and everybody's kind of beating around the bush. And then one person just said, okay, I'm going to organize this party. Who wants to do what? And then it made it happen. Um, it's just, I feel like that kind of attitude can apply to so many different situations in, in my yeah. Put your neck out there. Go for it. <laughs> Great job, Sam. It takes a go-to person, you know, to just kind of raise their hand and then the rest of it hopefully falls into place. Yeah, hopefully. No, it always does. (laughs) It always works out in the end. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Samantha. This is great to chat with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And thanks for scheduling this on on pretty short notice um, and uh, and working with me on the the time zone difference, which has actually worked out pretty well. Um, Thank you. I know it's late for you. Oh, no problem. But thanks again. And um looking forward to seeing you next week. So hopefully we can find some time to get together. And uh in the meantime, I, I hope um I hope things work out with this little storm system and maybe it gets kicked out a little sooner than people are expecting and that uh, yeah. we, we get some wind next week. That'd be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I hope for wind too. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Russ. You got it. Thanks to you, Sam. Take care.